Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. When we think of unbreakable bonds between two people, the relationship that comes to mind are stories for the ages that occupy the space between romance and infamy. Romeo and Juliet, Bonnie and Clyde, Napoleon and Josephine, Cleopatra and Mark Antony, Catherine and Heathcliff. These fictional yet epic tales epitomize the gamut of emotion in charting the breadth and depth of human feeling. But these are the tales of lovers. Today's story is not that of a romance per se, but about another special kind of relationship. The type of relationship some of us are lucky enough to have in our lives at least once. It's a story of best friends. It's also a story about testing the bounds of friendship. How far would you go for a friend? Listener? At what price? What would you do when the world is conspiring against your unique and inexplicable bond? Adolescent friendship can be intense. They can be intoxicating. As anyone who has adolescent daughters know, extricating their female offspring from the company of that one special friend online, or on the phone to attend to their household chores, homework, or family meals, can prove endearingly irritating, at other times downright infuriating. The obsession of teenage girls in spending their every waking moment with their best friends can become all-consuming. To the exclusion of family, it's okay, we say, with a knowing smile, a sigh, and a resigned shake of the head. No one's being hurt. They'll grow out of it. It's a phase. We don't get their in-jokes or understand their secret language or slang. But we're grateful that our child has a friend they can share their hopes, dreams, and secrets with and turn to in a time of trouble. Someone who we hope has their best interests at heart and has their back when their family can't always be around to look out for them. It's not unusual for some teenage best friends to have their own special way of speaking, their own way of relating to each other in a way that no one else could possibly hope to begin to understand. When it's you and your best friend against the world no matter what, you can feel like an unstoppable, impenetrable force. A force for good. A force forged in loyalty. But today's story is about what happens when the force mutates into something else. Something deep, dark, and so terrible, it defies the depths of what our imaginations can conjure up. When we think of just how far the bonds of devotion between best friends will go when tested. Now, let's get on with it. Part 1. The Garden City The third largest city in New Zealand, Christchurch is located on the east coast of the South Island at Pegasus Bay. Settled by English immigrants in the 1850s, today, Christchurch is a cosmopolitan city, still in the process of rebuilding, physically and emotionally. Following a devastating earthquake in 2011 
that killed 185 and injured between 1,500 and 2,000 people. The earthquake destroyed a large percentage of the city's buildings and its distinctive neo-Gothic architecture, most notably the iconic cathedral, as well as part of the Red Brick Christchurch Girls High School in Cranmer Square. But our story today takes us back to the 1950s post-war Christchurch, a conservative city of 170,000 people, regarded as a slice of England in the Southern Hemisphere. The city's architecture reflected that of English provincial towns, where neat rows of shops and houses line the spotless streets where cycling is a popular pastime. It was a perfect place to settle and raise a family for native New Zealanders. And despite the long sea or plain journey from the northern hemisphere, it was a draw card for anyone wanting to escape the dreariness, drizzle, and post-war gloom of the United Kingdom. 1950s Christchurch was a place of respectability, where people worked hard, loved their rugby, minded their own business, and didn't get involved in anyone else's. Children were raised with a mix of British values, where one maintained the stiff upper lip of the motherland and the down-to-earth friendliness and solid work ethic of the Antipodes. The afternoon of June 22, 1954, in Christchurch was unseasonably warm. The proprietors of the tea rooms at Victoria Park, five miles outside Christchurch on the poor hills at Kashmir, were serving refreshments to visitors who would come to enjoy the fresh air and picturesque surroundings of the walking trails situated in several hundred acres of parkland. With its native and English trees, the park allows visitors panoramic views of the city below, as well as the Canterbury Plains, Pegasus Bay, and New Zealand's Southern Alps. Just after 3.30 p.m., on that sunny winter afternoon, the stillness of the park was shattered by screams and shouting. Agnes Ritchie, who ran the tea rooms, looked up to see two teenage girls running toward her, breathless and hysterical, garbling that there had been an accident down on the path. Both girls' clothes and faces were covered in blood, indicating something terrible had indeed happened. No one could have imagined that in a few short months, New Zealand and the world would be captivated by the controversial trial, rising out of what would become the most infamous murder in the country. Part 2. Pauline Born on May 26, 1938, in Christchurch, Pauline Yvonne Reaper was the second daughter of Herbert and Honora. Pauline had an older sister of 11 months named Wendy, with whom she was close, and a younger sister with Down syndrome was in care at a home for children with disabilities. Pauline spent her fifth birthday in hospital with osteomyelitis, a debilitating bone condition characterized by chronic pain. As a young girl, Pauline required numerous painful surgical procedures to drain infection, which also resulted in a permanent limp and night pain. Pauline's frequent hospitalizations from a tender age resulted in social isolation from her peers due to missing school and being unable to participate in various physical activities. Pauline's parents, known as Bert and Nora, were working class. Australian-born Bert worked as a business manager for Dennis Brothers Fishmongers and, in 1946, the family moved to 31 Gloucester Street, across the back fence from Christchurch Girls High School. English-born Nora worked as a legal secretary until her youngest daughter turned five. But in order to earn additional income, in early 1953, the Reapers decided to take in boarders at their two-story family home. 
These were local universities and college students. Pauline was affectionately known to her family by her middle name, Yvonne. But at school, she insisted on being called Paul. She loved art, writing, and plasticine and wood modeling, but was an introverted and solitary personality, preferring to keep to herself. Excelling at English, Pauline was exceptionally intelligent or resistant to discipline at school, and was a loner with no close friends. Standing at 5 feet 3 inches with brown eyes and olive skin, a former classmate described Pauline as a moody, scowling type of a girl, but a strong character. She was a tomboy, with dumpy boyish looks and curly black hair that was shorter than the other girls. In terms of her home life, Pauline was described as a happy child, got along well with her parents. Pauline did housework to help support the running of the boarding house, and there was a lot of it. Not only were there the usual chores associated with a family of four, but for four additional boarders as well. Such a busy household, whose occupants turned over quite frequently, Pauline had little privacy, guarding what little she did have fiercely. Apart from the busyness of the boarder house, nothing much exciting happened in Pauline's life. But in 1952, while attending Christchurch Girls High School, she met an entrancing new English classmate, Juliet Hume. Part 3. Juliet Juliet Marion Hume was born in Greenwich, London on October 28, 1938. As a child during the Blitz of World War II, Juliet suffered bomb shock, including screaming nightmares and insomnia, for about a month as a result of the relentless coordinated attacks from German aircraft that destroyed much of the city. From a young age, Juliet also suffered from serious respiratory illness, including bronchitis and pneumonia. This continued on and off throughout her life, resulting in her often being sent away from England to sunny and warm overseas destinations such as the Bahamas and South Africa to convalesce. While Juliet always recovered physically from her bouts of illness, the protracted separation from her parents was emotionally traumatic, and any subsequent periods of illness became terrifying for the young girl, due to the prospect of isolation from her loved ones. In December of 1947, Juliet was sent to the Bay of Islands in the North Island of New Zealand to stay with another family to convalesce. But the following year, at age 10, her respiratory health deteriorated to such an extent that she was admitted to a sanatorium. By this time in her young life, Juliet had been separated from her family for a total of 13 months, not an insignificant period of time for a sickly child to be without any form of parental care and attention. Juliet's illness also caused her to miss a considerable amount of school, but she was exceptionally bright and loved to read. Juliet's parents, Henry and Hilda, arrived in Christchurch in October 1948 with Juliet's younger brother, Jonathan. Dr. Henry Hume was the former chief assistant of the British astronomer Royal, a physics academic and one of England's leading mathematical scientists. Dr. Hume had accepted the appointment of rector of Canterbury University College, which is the equivalent to today's position of vice-chancellor. Aside from Dr. Hume's new academic posting, the main reason for Hume's relocation was to treat Juliet's tuberculosis. The smog and pollution of post-war London, with its damp long winters, was considered by doctors to be too much of a hindrance to Juliet's recovery. Hilda Hume was a marriage therapist and described as a self-possessed, highly intelligent woman with many cultural and social activities. 
1948, she helped found the Marriage Guidance Council and was a board member of Christchurch Girls High School, which Juliet eventually attended. Hilda was also a popular guest on Radio 3YA, providing marital and family advice to listeners. Despite outward appearances, Hilda didn't prove very popular socially in her adopted country, where she and the rest of the family were perceived by some as a bit too upper class for even the top rung of Christchurch society. In January 1950, Juliet was sent to private boarding school in Hastings on the North Island. However, she was desperately unhappy and returned home to her family that same year. By this stage, the Humes had moved to the 16-room stone mansion on Island Road in Christchurch, known as Island Homestead. The property had 53 acres of extensive and picturesque grounds and a housekeeper to cater to the Humes every need. Juliet was talented at French and visual art and also enjoyed spending time riding her horse. A former classmate described her as a fish out of water, but not in a humble way. She had a polished English accent and would hold her head high as she walked. A psychiatrist later described Juliet as a tall, willowy, frail, attractive blonde with large blue eyes. At 5 feet 7 inches with a slim build, shoulder-length dark blonde hair, and a fair complexion, Juliet was an English rose if ever there was one. Unfortunately, the long-term separation from her family in her younger years, coupled with her parents' reported disinterest in engaging with their daughter after her long absences, resulted in Juliet being lonely and desperate for meaningful social interaction. R4, 1952 The Humes were of the view that when Juliet started high school, her IQ of 170 would be better suited for the stimulation of a larger, diverse public school environment. In February 1952, at age 13, Juliet became a student at Christchurch Girls High School. Juliet had always been shy and reserved, unable to engage with her peers socially through sport and physical activity due to her poor respiratory health. Through her exemption from the school gym class, Juliet met the introverted Pauline Reaper, who likewise was unable to engage in physically demanding exercise due to her history of osteomyelitis. As the unlikely pair grew closer from mid-1952 onwards, Hilda and Dr. Hume encouraged Juliet's new friendship and were pleased she was settling into her new school environment after so much upheaval. The girls spent their time together doing things that all teenagers do. Pauline regularly snuck out at night, riding her bicycle to Islam, where she and Juliet would have nighttime picnics in the expansive grounds. They enjoyed chatting about literature, writing, and discussing at length their hopes and dreams for the future. Pauline had always found her own life dull and dreary, while Juliet seemed to have the fairy tale home environment Pauline so desperately wanted. Dr. Hume drove a Jaguar, and the Humes hosted all manner of dinner parties and receptions at Ilum for university staff. The family also mixed in intellectually and socially stimulating circles, and Juliet's parents encouraged her to explore her creative and imaginative side. Pauline's resentment of her home life grew as she and Juliet spent more time together. The Reapers weren't unkind or uncaring people. They were hardworking, decent people who loved their children very much. But Pauline resented her parents' lack of intellectual, cultural, and social sophistication, and in these respects, came to perceive herself as superior to the rest of her family. The girls also spent their time playing dress-ups, 
running through the expansive, well-manicured grounds of Ilum, acting out fantasy scenarios, riding their bikes, watching movies starring their favorite screen idols, and listening to records for hours, especially the Italian Mario Lanza, Pauline started spending more and more time at Ilum, having frequent sleepovers at the Humes. In 1952, Pauline recounted in her diary one particular occasion where she and Juliet went for a bike ride in the country, where they stopped and ran through the bush, peeling off their outer clothes and laughing hysterically. The girls also took to sneaking out at night to dress up and act out plays in the grounds of Ilum until the early hours of the morning. Out of the girls' intense connection grew the idea that they considered themselves spiritually enlightened. This led to them creating fantasy worlds over which they ruled, consisting of the fictional kingdoms of Borovina and Volumnia, the girls took on alter egos as a part of their fantasy kingdoms as the royal couple, Charles II, Pauline, and his mistress, Deborah, Juliet. Pauline also had another Borovinian alter ego called Gina. The girls started writing to each other as their characters, Juliet often signing off her letters as Deborah, and Pauline as Gina. The girls' imaginations heavily influenced their writing. In addition to their countless letters to each other, they penned poems, stories, and even an opera. As their writing progressed, the fantastical bounds of their imaginations took on characteristics later described as extravagant and grandiose. As part of their fantasy, the girls also rejected Christianity and spent a lot of time discussing their version of heaven, which they called the fourth world. According to the girls, the fourth world could be occupied by ten people, would only be able to enter it twice a year. Eight of these people were male figures the girls worshipped as saints. These saints were known by names such as he, him, and it, who were in actuality popular male film and music stars of the day and fictional characters, including actor James Mason and Italian opera singer and Hollywood actor Mario Lanza. The Fourth World also had gods, who included Rupert Brooke, Julius Caesar, Caruso, and Charles II. Part 5, 1953 Pauline's Christmas gift from her parents in 1952 was a diary. Being a prolific writer, she took to journaling with gusto. She started her diary in January. Her first entry, documenting her New Year's resolution for 1953, to be lenient with others. During the girl's friendship, Juliet often rode her horse over to Pauline's house to visit. Pauline was an experienced horse rider herself and harassed her parents into having a horse of her own, but their answer was no. But this was no matter to Pauline. In February 1953, she defied her parents and found the means by which to acquire a horse secretly keeping it in a paddock and taking advice from Juliet about how to care for it. However, Pauline couldn't keep the secret from her parents for long and, eventually, her deception was uncovered. Seeing this more as a hill they didn't want to die on, Bert and Nora reluctantly acquiesced and allowed Pauline to keep the horse, not wanting to incur the wrath of their daughter. They just wanted Pauline to be happy and their home free of moodiness and tension. That was becoming an all-too-rare occurrence in the Reaper house as time went on. By March 1953, Pauline was writing fiction that focused heavily on violence and sexualized themes. 
It was also around this time that the girls developed the perception that their own intellectual capacity far exceeded that of others. As Pauline wrote, We have decided how sad it is for other people that they cannot appreciate our genius. Pauline was invited to stay with the Humes during Easter 1953 at their holiday cottage in Port Levy, an hour south of Christchurch on the East Coast. During this trip, Pauline wrote in her diary, Today, Julia and I found the key to the fourth world. We saw a gateway through the clouds. We sat on the edge of the path and looked down the hill, out over the bay. The island looked beautiful. The sea was blue and everything was full of peace and bliss. We know now that we have an extra part of the brain, which can appreciate the fourth world. The days I spent at Port Levy were the most heavenly ones I have ever experienced. Mrs. Hume did my hair. She calls me her foster daughter. On returning from Port Levy, the Humes planned to travel overseas from late May to late August. Rather than disrupt Juliet's schooling with the trip, Nora offered for Juliet to stay with the Reapers while her parents were away. However, these plans were scuppered early in May when Juliet was admitted to Kashmir Sanatorium for several months with a reoccurrence of tuberculosis. Instead of canceling the trip, Hilda and Dr. Hume went away. Juliet was devastated, once again feeling abandoned by her family. The only person who seemed to care about her being ill was Pauline wrote countless letters and visited as often as she could. During this time, Pauline wrote in her diary, Poor Julietta. It is only now I realize how fond I am of her. I had a terrible job not to cry. I spent a wretched night. It was a relief to see Juliet looking so well. We agreed it was a great pity I had not tuberculosis too, and it would be wonderful if I could catch it. We would be in the sanatorium together and would be able to write a lot. We have decided we are the most incredible optimists. Meanwhile, without the company of her best friend, Pauline began entertaining a male lodger at the Reaper home. John was a law student, but Pauline referred to him in her diaries by his middle name of Nicholas. On July 12, 1953, Pauline's father discovered the pair in bed together talking. And even though nothing had happened, Nicholas was evicted from the Reaper home. Pauline documented this incident in her diary. I am terribly cut up. I miss Nicholas terribly. Mother thinks I will have nothing more to do with him. Little she knows. Even though Nicholas was sent away from the Reapers, Pauline regularly snuck out at night to meet with him, without her parents' knowledge. Pauline's mother had noticed the intensity of the girl's friendship increasing during the Hume's absence. When the Humes returned to Christchurch in August, Juliet was discharged home to Islam. But given she hadn't fully recovered, she did not return to school. To expedite Juliet's recovery, Pauline was invited to stay more frequently at Islam, and the girls grew even closer. Nora Reaper expressed her concerns about the friendship to Hilda, who acknowledged that since the Humes had returned to New Zealand, Juliet seemed to ignore her and had become cold and difficult. Like any other teenagers, the girls were becoming aware of their sexuality and often spoke about sex in the context of their fantasy worlds. The characters of Borovinia and Volumnia were regularly engaged in sordid romantic entanglements and affairs. 
In the time of conservative 1950s New Zealand, sex and sexuality weren't something that respectable, ladylike young women were meant to know about, much less discuss at length or fantasize over. The girls were so close that they took to bathing together and sleeping in the same bed when Pauline stayed at Islam. It wasn't long before the Reapers became deeply anxious about the amount of time the two girls were spending with each other, to the exclusion of all others including the possibility that they were more than just friends. In 1952, homosexuality was taboo and considered a mental health disorder requiring medical treatment. Electroshock therapy, aversion therapy, and confinement to a mental asylum were commonly used to treat people attracted to the same sex. Regardless of how much time Pauline and Juliet spent with each other, when the two were apart, they were prone to withdrawal from others, anger, moodiness, and becoming easily upset. For both sets of parents, the possibility that their daughters were not just friends, but lovers, didn't bear thinking about. But with Juliet back at Islam, Pauline couldn't have been happier. Writing in her diary, It was as if she'd never been away. I believe I could fall in love with Juliet. Pauline continued to visit Nicholas and, in September 1953, they attempted to have sex on several occasions but were unsuccessful due to the experience being painful for Pauline. However, on October 4th, this changed. Pauline writing in her diary, Nicholas was pleased that I was so early. We sat around and talked for an hour and then went to bed. I declined the invitation at first, but he became very masterful and I had no option. I discovered that I had not lost my virginity on Thursday night. However, there is no doubt whatsoever that I have now. Pauline's diary entry for October 28th read, I told Nicholas this evening I was no longer very much in love with him. However, she continued to visit him up until February 1954. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Humes observed that following Pauline's visit to Islam, Juliet developed a tendency to become unwell and was so unhappy she was confined to bed. She also became clingy and needy of Hilda and Pauline's absence, prompting Hilda to continue to encourage Pauline's visits. For Hilda, when Pauline was around, this offered some respite, as Juliet would at least be out of her mother's hair and demand someone else's attention for a few days. By December 1953, the Reapers were so concerned about Pauline's health that they took her to see Dr. Bennett, a physician Dr. Hume recommended and a social acquaintance of the Humes, who also worked with Hilda at the Marriage Guidance Council. Pauline had been losing weight and vomiting every meal, suffering from what today would be diagnosed as bulimia nervosa. However, Dr. Hume had an ulterior motive. His concern was not about Pauline's eating habits, but her friendship with Juliet. Dr. Hume was confident Dr. Bennett would be able to determine whether the girls were in a same-sex relationship. But much to the frustration of both sets of parents, Pauline's session with Dr. Bennett did not go well, and she was uncooperative and hostile. 
Pauline told the doctor that her mother nagged her and that she didn't want to be friends with other girls except Juliet because they were silly. When the consultation concluded, Dr. Bennett's assessment was that the girls were indeed in a same-sex relationship, but that it was a phase they would grow out of. Several weeks later, Nora felt more drastic measures were required. She told Pauline that unless she started to put on weight, she would not be allowed to visit Juliet. Pauline recalled that event by writing, She said that if my health did not improve, I could never see the Humes again. The thought is too dreadful. Life would be unbearable without Deborah. I rang Deborah and told her of the threat. I wish I could die. That is not an idle or temporary impulse. I have decided over the last two or three weeks that it would be the best thing that could happen altogether. The thought of death is not fearsome. Despite Pauline's consultation with Dr. Bennett, Juliet's parents did not feel it appropriate for their daughter to be psychoanalyzed regarding her friendship with Pauline. To quell what they felt was an unhealthy attachment, the Humes left for their Christmas holiday to Port Levy in 1953, but did not invite Pauline, hoping the temporary separation would have the desired effect. As the year drew to a close, a poem appeared in the back of Pauline's diary. Entitled, The Ones That I Worship, it demonstrated the girls' over-exaggerated sense of self and disdain they felt for those around them who weren't a part of their morally, intellectually, and spiritually superior world. They are living amongst two dutiful daughters, of a man possesses two beautiful daughters, the most glorious beings in creation. They'd be the pride and joy of any nation you cannot know nor try to guess, the sweet soothingness of their caress. The outstanding genius of this pair is understood by few, they are so rare. Compared with these two, every man is a fool. The world is most honored that they should deign to rule, and above us these goddesses reign on high. I worship the power of these lovely two, with the adoring love known to so few. Tis indeed a miracle one must feel, that two such heavenly creatures are real. Both sets of eyes, though different far, hold many mysteries strange. Impassively, they watch the race of man decay and change. Hatred burning bright in the brown eyes with enemies for fuel. Icy scorn glitters in the gray eyes, contemptuous and cruel. Why are men such fools they will not realize? The wisdom that is hidden behind those strange eyes. And these two wonderful people are you and I. Part 6, 1954 Pauline's New Year resolution for 1954 reflected on her pessimism, an increasingly misanthropic view when she wrote, My resolution is a far more selfish one than last year. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. You may be dead. Following Juliet's return from Port Levy, an elated Pauline went to stay at Ilam, where the girls stayed up late into the night, giggling and gossiping about all manner of things, including how much money they could hypothetically make as sex workers to finance a trip to America. The girls were planning to leave New Zealand in order to peddle their novels to the esteemed publishing houses of New York, as well as sell the rights to their books to Hollywood agents adapting their stories to screenplays, where they would star in film versions. 
At this stage, Nora was still concerned that Pauline hadn't gained weight, so the threat of Pauline not being able to visit Ilum was constant. In February, Pauline was so angry with her mother, she wrote in her diary, Why could mother not die? Dozens of people, thousands of people are dying every day. So why not mother and father too? The girls forged ahead with their plans. In March, Pauline made inquiries with shipping companies to investigate relocation costs for a trip to America. Willing to make sacrifices, Juliet sold her horse to her mother Hilda's friend, Walter Perry, for 50 pounds. Canadian-born Walter had arrived to New Zealand from England in 1953, and the dashing engineer met Hilda through the Marriage Guidance Council. At Hilda's suggestion, Walter had been living in the granny flat at Islam since the previous December, and the two soon began to have an affair. A few months after he moved in, Pauline and Juliet saw a display of affection between Walter and Hilda. Ever the opportunist, the girls hatched a plan to blackmail the couple to obtain funds to finance their planned trip to America. Pauline's behavior at home towards her family remained volatile, and in March, Nora announced that Pauline wouldn't be returning to school as she was a, quote, horrid child. Pauline was secretly ecstatic as she had no interest in returning to school without Juliet, who had not returned to mainstream schooling, and in April 1954, Pauline was enrolled at Digby's Commercial College to learn shorthand and typing. That same month, the full scope of Walter and Hilda's affair was exposed. On April 24th, Pauline wrote that the previous night, Juliet awoke at 2 a.m., and upon hearing voices in the house, went looking for her mother. Juliet found Hilda not in her own room, but drinking tea in bed with Walter in his flat, by Pauline's account, Juliet tried to blackmail the couple, saying that she and Pauline were moving to Hollywood to be film stars, demanded 100 pounds to finance the trip, or she'd tell her father about her mother's betrayal. Hilda calmly told Juliet that she and Walter were in love and that Henry knew all about the affair. Hilda would later claim that the girl's recollection of the incident was untrue and that she had simply taken Walter T in bed as he was unwell. The following day, Pauline biked out to Islam to comfort her devastated friend over the revelation that her mother had been unfaithful. Dr. Hume sat both girls down to obtain details of the proposed trip to America and then told them that he and Hilda were divorcing. Due to ongoing conflict with his colleagues at the board of Canterbury College, Dr. Hume had by this stage submitted his resignation. He planned to return to England in January 1955 with Hilda and the children to follow once Julia was better. Juliet, of course, was inconsolable. Despite the impending upheaval in the Hume household, Pauline maintained her loyalty to Juliet, noting in her diary, Deborah and I are sticking to through everything. We sink or swim together. The future for Pauline and Juliet's friendship seemed hopeless. It was only a few days after the Humes announced their impending divorce that Pauline again documented her thoughts and feelings of hate and rage towards her mother, this time with a disturbing twist. Anger against mother boiled up inside of me. It is she who is one of the main obstacles in my path. Suddenly, a means of ridding myself of obstacles occurred to me. If she were to die... Instead of dismissing this as a fleeting thought, the following day, Pauline considered this further. I did not tell Deborah of my plans for removing mother. I am trying to think of some way. I do not want it to be too much trouble but I want it to appear either a natural or accidental death. Deborah is worried, but doesn't disagree violently. 
On May 1954, the girls had taken to shoplifting to finance their proposed trip to America. In the early hours of May 26, Pauline snuck out of the house, planning to break into her father's shop and steal the takings from the cash register. However, when she spotted a policeman on the street, she lost her nerve and turned back home, empty-handed. Earlier that month, Nora had again approached Dr. Hume, seeking a solution to the intensity of the girls' friendship. Given the girls' completely unrealistic plans to travel to America, the Humes finally concurred with Nora that the attachment between their daughters was unhealthy. Dr. Hume changed his plans, telling Nora he planned to leave New Zealand in early July and take Juliet with him. As Juliet was still convalescing from her previous bout of tuberculosis, Dr. Hume would travel with her as far as South Africa, where she would stay with her sister while Dr. Hume would continue on to England. Hilda would await the school holidays and return with Jonathan in England. Privately, Pauline's parents were relieved. They felt the obnoxious and conceited Juliet was a bad influence on Pauline's moods and behavior. And they looked forward to having some stability in the house, without being at the mercy of Pauline's temper. It was decided the girls were to be permanently separated. Juliet was devastated, not just about the breakup of their family, and feeling of abandonment, but heartbroken that she would be moving away from Pauline. Their plans to move to New York and then conquer Hollywood could not be realized. They were apart. Not to be deterred by the spanner in the works, the girls revised their plans and decided that they would no longer go to Hollywood together, but instead both traveled to South Africa with Dr. Hume and then go on to England when Juliet had fully recovered. Juliet begged her parents if she could ask the Reapers if Pauline could relocate with her to South Africa. When this was put to the Reapers, who unsurprisingly refused, Pauline and Juliet were inconsolable. They refused to speak to their families, spending their days sullen and sobbing on their beds with their bedroom doors shut. They couldn't believe that their friendship was being torn apart and their families didn't even seem to care. A desperate Pauline made inquiries with the New Zealand passport office to apply for her own passport, which she was too young to do. The New Zealand government didn't issue passports to anyone under the age of 20 in the absence of parental consent. As the date of Juliet's departure loomed, the girls felt the walls around them closing in, and their plans for staying together fast coming undone. In Pauline's mind, there was only one barrier to being able to leave the country with Juliet. The seeds of betrayal and resentment in Pauline's mind had been sown, and rage would soon become the product of her heartbreak. On June 11, 1954, Pauline and Juliet went to see the Orson Welles film Trent's Last Case, Pauline was enthralled by the actor, who was one of the saints. Upon returning to Ilum for the evening, she wrote about how she and Juliet spent the remainder of the night. We enacted how each saint would make love in bed. We felt exhausted and very satisfied. According to Pauline's diary, the girls spent the next two nights doing the same thing until the very early hours. Of their sexual experimentation, Pauline wrote, it was wonderful, heavenly, beautiful, and ours. We felt very satisfied indeed. We have now learned the peace of this thing called bliss. 
the joy of the thing called sin. As the date for the Humes' departure drew closer, the girls' parents met to discuss both how to manage their daughter's increasingly challenging behavior and minimize the impact when the time would come for Juliet to leave. Hilda Hume suggested that the blow may be softened by allowing the girls to spend as much time together as possible, by Pauline coming to stay at Ilum for a week. The Reapers reluctantly agreed and the girls were thrilled, as it would give them opportunity to discuss at length their plans to be together. During that week, Pauline put to Juliet that in the event Nora was to disappear, Pauline would be free to go to South Africa. All that was required was for the girls to get Nora on her own in an isolated place and make it look like she had met with an unfortunate accident. And even if the girls were caught and convicted of murder, they'd be together. That was the most important thing. When Pauline's father collected her following her week's stay at Ilum, he noted that his daughters appeared bright and happy, was pleasant to her mother, and pitched in with the housework. The following day, Pauline suggested to Nora that as she was commencing a new job on June 28th that she, Nora and Juliet, go to Victoria Park to celebrate with a last formal outing. Happy that Pauline would soon be free of the influence of Juliet and earning her keep, Nora agreed. Plans were put in place for Juliet to have lunch at the Reaper home the next day, followed by Nora accompanying the two girls to Victoria Park. Part 7. Dutiful Daughters On June 22nd, Juliet was driven into town by Dr. Hume, and, following a stop at Beth's department store, she walked to the Reaper's home. Juliet had brought in her bag half a large brick wrapped in a newspaper, which she'd taken from the Hume's garden shed. In Pauline's bedroom before lunch, Juliet gave the half brick to Pauline, who placed it in a stocking, then in her own bag. Juliet had also brought along a pink gemstone from a brooch. At lunch, the girls chatted and laughed. Following the meal, Nora, Pauline, and Juliet walked to the Cathedral Square and caught the bus to Cashmere Hills, where they alighted and walked 1.5 kilometers to Victoria Park. When the trio arrived at 2.30 p.m., Nora found she had already an appetite, so the group made their way to the kiosk for afternoon tea. Once they'd finished their scones and tea, just before 3.30 p.m., they set off in single file down one of the paths into the gardens. Pauline was at the front, Nora in the middle, and Juliet brought up the rear. In a heavily wooded area, a quarter mile down a steep incline into their walk near a small wooden bridge, the path became muddy. Nora decided she wanted to turn back, so Juliet went on ahead, a stop to call the mother and daughter to come and look at something she'd found on the ground. Arriving at the spot, Pauline asked, Oh, what's that? Bending over to look at the pink gemstone, Juliet had dropped moments earlier. A curious Nora also bent down to inspect what they'd found when she felt a sudden blow to the back of her head. Stumbling forward and groaning in pain and shock, the 45-year-old had little time to realize what had happened before she was struck again, this time with greater force. To her horror, she realized that Pauline and Juliet were standing above her, raining blows down upon her head and face. Pauline had struck the initial blows, having stashed the half-brick in her handbag. 
Nora covered her head with her hands, proving harder to subdue than the girls anticipated. The half-brick eventually tore itself free from the stocking, and the girls were now taking turns using their hands to smash the brick into the woman they believed to be the only obstruction to their friendship. The girls restrained Nora on the ground by the throat, lying face up, and took turns bludgeoning her with the half-brick. Nora spasmed and convulsed as she was hit between 20 to 30 times. Eventually, she stopped moving. The girls by now in shock and their clothes and faces covered in blood left Nora's crumpled body on the ground and ran screaming and wailing up the path back towards the kiosk which was 400 yards away. When the proprietor Agnes Ritchie came outside due to the commotion, the girls accosted her. Pauline gasping, Please, could somebody help us? It's Mummy. She's terribly hurt. I think she's dead. An hysterical Juliet screamed, It's mother. She's hurt. She's covered with blood. Please, somebody help. The girls begged not to be made to go back down the path. Pauline gestured vaguely to Agnes's husband, Kenneth, in the direction of where she thought her mother lay. When talking with Pauline, Kenneth made the grisly observation that the girl's left hand was covered in gore. The bottom of her left coat sleeve was also soaked in six inches of blood. Agnes called an ambulance and comforted the girls, making them tea and calling their fathers. She also showed them where they could wash up in the kiosk servery, but it didn't go unnoticed that while the girls were washing the blood from their hands and faces, that they could be heard giggling. When Agnes asked about the accident, Pauline calmly recounted, We were coming back along the track. Mummy tripped on a plank and hit her head when she landed. She kept falling, and her head kept banging and bumping as she fell. A desperate Juliet who appeared far more upset, cried, I'll always remember her head banging. Meanwhile, Kenneth had ventured down the track where he discovered Nora's lifeless body sprawled across a bed of pine needles. The woman had clearly been subjected to a savage beating, not just a bump on the head. A doctor who was called to the scene quickly found he could not explain the injuries to Nora as being sustained by a fall and called the police. When the police arrived, they found Nora lying on her back facing slightly downhill. A blood-stained half-brick lay on the ground 15 inches from her head. Nora's right shoe had come off her foot. Her handbag, hat, gloves, and sweater, and a singular woman's stocking lay four feet away, knotted at the ankle and the foot of the stocking matted with hair. The part of the path that lay in the park where Nora's body was found was not noted to be rocky area, but instead clay. Her nose and mouth was caked with blood. Her arms and stocking were stained with mud and a stream of blood flowing from her head wound had run 12 feet downhill. The 22nd of June that year was the winter solstice in the southern hemisphere. The sun set early at 4.59 p.m., and as darkness fell, more police arrived. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. 
They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. As far as Juliet's parents knew, Nora had fallen in Victoria Park during the walk and hit her head on some rocks. Following the incident, the girls were taken back to Ilum, where Hilda Hume gave both of them a bath to help treat them for shock. The girls' blood-stained clothing was taken to the cleaners by Walter Perry. Pauline was reported to be extremely quiet for the remainder of the evening, while Juliet was animated and talkative. Pauline was later extremely distressed and told Walter that she and Juliet attempted to pick Nora up off the ground, but had dropped her. She also claimed the girls checked for her mother's heartbeat but could not detect one. Two detectives called at Ilum at 8pm to interview both girls. When Pauline was questioned, first she told police... We were walking up the track, having been to the bottom. I was leading, and Mother and Deborah were behind me. Mother suddenly slipped and fell. She twisted sideways and hit her head on a rock or something. She seemed to keep tossing up and down and hitting her head. When police told her they didn't believe Juliet was present at the time of the murder, Pauline appeared surprised. At no stage did police believe Pauline's account that her mother had simply fallen, and they were determined to elicit a confession. Police probed Pauline further. Question. Who assaulted your mother? Answer. I did. Question. Why? Answer. If you don't mind, I won't answer that question. Question. When did you make up your mind to kill your mother? Answer. A few days ago. Question. Did you tell anyone you were going to do it? Answer. No. My friend does not know anything about it. She was out of sight at the time. She had gone on ahead. Question. What did your mother say? Answer. I would rather not answer that. Question. How many times did you hit your mother? Answer. Good many times, I imagine. Question. What did you use? Answer. A half brick and a stocking. I wish to state that Juliet did not know of my intentions. She did not see me strike my mother. I took the chance to strike my mother while Juliet was away. I still do not wish to say why I killed my mother. Question. Did you tell Juliet that you killed your mother? Answer. She knew nothing about it. 
As far as I know, she believed what I told her, although she may have guessed what had happened. But I doubt it, as we were both so shaken that it probably did not occur to her. As soon as I started to strike my mother, I regretted it, but I could not stop then. Juliet was interviewed in the presence of her mother and corroborated Pauline's initial account of Nora falling and hitting her head. In Juliet's initial statement to police, she said she was not with Pauline when Nora was killed. Juliet stated she came back to find Nora lying on the ground, that Pauline told her that her mother had slipped and hit her head. The Humes were overwhelmed with the relief that their daughter didn't appear to have participated in the vicious act after all, but had instead found herself in a difficult position wanting to support her friend under horrific circumstances. After signing her statement, Pauline was taken to Christchurch Police Station, where she was charged with murder. At the station, she was discovered to be in possession of a piece of paper, which it appeared she tried to burn. Written on the paper was something of a pseudo-diary entry for June 22nd. All the Humes have been wonderfully kind and sympathetic. Anyone would think I've been good. I've had a pleasant time with the police, talking 19 to the dozen, and behaving as though I hadn't a care in the world. I haven't had a chance to talk to Deborah properly, but I am taking the blame for everything. After speaking with Burt Reaper, following Pauline's arrest, police discovered the evidence that would allow them to focus on the reason for Nora's brutal murder. That night, in search of the Reaper's home, in addition to 14 exercise books and a scrapbook, police discovered the smoking gun in the form of Pauline's diary. Back in late 1953, Pauline and Juliet had seen the Orson Welles film, Pandora and the Flying Dutchman. It was in this film that they noted the alternate pronunciation of the word murder as moiter, which was how Pauline would come to use the term in her diary entries a couple of days before the murder. Our main idea for the day was to moiter mother. This notion is not a new one, but this time it's a definite plan, which we intend to carry out. We have worked it out carefully and are both thrilled by the idea. Naturally, we feel a trifle nervous, but the pleasure of anticipation is great. I shall not write the plan down here, as I shall write it up when we carry it out. We discussed our plans for moitering mother and made them a little clearer. Peculiarly enough, I have no qualms of conscience. The day before the murder, Pauline's diary detailed the plan further. Deborah rang and we decided to use a rock and a stocking instead of a sandbag. We discussed the moiter fully. I felt very keyed up, as though I was planning a surprise party. Mother had fallen in with everything beautifully, and the happy event is to take place. So next time I write in this diary, Mother will be dead. How odd, yet how pleasing. The diary for June 22nd was entitled, The Day of the Happy Event, and continued, I am writing a little bit of this up on the morning of the death. I felt very excited in the night before Christmas just last night. I didn't have pleasant dreams, though. I am about to rise. Pauline spent that night in the police cells. The day following the murder, Juliet apologized for misleading police and gave a second statement in which she admitted to helping Pauline murder Nora. Juliet told police that, during the incident, she was terrified and hysterical. There was now no question that Pauline and Juliet were responsible for arguably the most horrific murder in New Zealand of the 20th century. In the early 1950s, murder was rare in New Zealand. Only two to three murders occurred per year. Not only was the manner of Nora's death exceptionally brutal, but it had been carried out by her adolescent daughter, no less. Literature on the crime of matricide, killing one's mother, 
indicates that daughters are far less likely to kill their mothers than sons, and if they do, it's mostly adult women over the age of 18. In this regard, Pauline and Juliet are outliers. Part 7. Day of Judgment When the pathologist conducted the post-mortem on Nora the day following the murder, the cause of death was determined as shock associated with multiple head injuries and crushing skull fractures. Nora's head injuries indicated that her head had been held immobile on the ground when she was struck. The bruising on her neck indicated she had also been held with some force, but not strangled. The tip of the little finger on her left hand was almost severed in what was believed to have been a defensive wound. Nora's head and facial wounds were so significant that she was unrecognizable. Her skull, cheekbones, nose, forehead, and teeth were broken and smashed, and the beating she received was so vicious it dislodged her dentures. Most of the major wounds were on the right side in front of Nora's head, and her right ear had been split in the attack. Her mouth was also blocked with vomit, indicating she may have convulsed as she died. Pauline's mother sustained an excess of 45 blunt force blows to her head and face at the hands of a frenzied blitz-style attack. 24 of the wounds were to her face, and the hairs found on the stocking were found to match those from Nora's head. Overall, the injuries were found to be consistent with a brick having been swung in the stocking with considerable force. The early stage of the investigation uncovered a further, scandalous revelation. Even though Pauline's parents had been living as a couple for over 20 years, they were discovered to be unmarried. Bert Reaper had abandoned two sons and a wife from a previous marriage, which hadn't been dissolved. Bert met Nora when they worked together years earlier, and in 1929 the couple ran off to Christchurch, where they began a new family. Pauline had no idea her parents were married, but was charged under her mother's maiden name of Parker. When asked to enter their plea at their initial court hearing, both girls replied, not guilty. The unusual living arrangement at Islam between the Humes and Walter Perry, and the scandal of Bert and Nora's relationship, which made Pauline and her siblings illegitimate, provided all the salacious fodder the media needed. Christchurch was the last place on earth anyone would have expected something so depraved to occur at the hands of teenage girls from respectable families. Aside from the fact that the murder victim was the mother of one of the alleged offenders, there was much speculation about the intense nature of the girls' friendship. Were they lesbians? Were they even sane? The publicity was unprecedented, especially when it was announced that the teenagers were to be tried as adults. While awaiting trial, the girls spent their time writing prolifically and listening to classical music. They were examined by several psychiatrists separately on numerous occasions between late July and mid-August. Juliet's intelligence was assessed as being that of a person of much greater age, while Pauline's intelligence was considered above average. Juliet told one of the psychiatrists, The day we killed Mrs. Reaper, I think she knew beforehand what was going to happen. She did not seem to bear any grudge. There's nothing in death. After all, she wasn't a very happy woman. In early July, Dr. Hume left Christchurch as planned and returned to England, taking his son Jonathan with him. Under fire for abandoning his daughter, he told the media, The world will just have to think of me as an unnatural father. I cannot say why I decided to leave New Zealand at this time. It would involve too many people. But there is nothing I can do there, just now. My only concern now is for my son. I want to spare him all I can. I've told him his sister is mentally ill, as indeed she is. 
Hilda decided to remain in New Zealand for the duration of the trial. Supported by Walter Perry, with whom her relationship had since gone public, despite this outward show of maternal support, Juliet refused to meet with her mother while awaiting trial. Pauline's father only attended the trial on the day he was required to give evidence. However, he did arrange Pauline's defense. The trial commenced on August 23, 1954, in the Supreme Court before Justice Adams. The key questions both defense and prosecution sought to answer were whether the girls were insane, and how the nature of their relationship and questions about their sexuality influenced their ability to know right from wrong. Pauline's diaries were not used as evidence in their entirety, but they were relied on extensively as evidence for both prosecution and the defense. Given that the Humes allowed Juliet to make their police statement without seeking prior legal advice, the girls' written confession now limited the defense teams to claiming the girls were insane at the time of the murder. Under the Crimes Act, when it came to proving insanity, the onus was on the defense to prove that it was more probable than not that insanity was the reason the crime occurred. The Crown Prosecutor opened his argument to the court, stating, The contention of the prosecution is that this plainly was a cold, callously committed and premeditated murder committed by two highly intelligent perfectly sane, but precocious and dirty-minded little girls. Walter Perry testified that Pauline was a constant visitor to Ilum, and corroborated Hilda's account of what happened the night of April 23rd, when Juliet found them in Perry's flat. Walter told the court that on the evening of the murder, Pauline had told him that her mother had slipped on a piece of wood and hit her head on a stone, banging her head repeatedly. Walter spoke of the nature of the correspondence between the girls, and he was aware of and said that both girls tried to outdo each other when it came to being as bloodthirsty as possible in their letters to each other. The three psychiatrists for the prosecutions told the court that they were of the view that the girls were sane and knew they were breaking the law. Juliet earlier told one of the psychiatrists, you'd have to be an absolute moron not to know murder was against the law. The psychiatrist testified that just because the girls had not demonstrated any remorse, this did not suggest that they were insane. When the Crown Prosecutor asked if the girl's relationship was sexual, the psychiatrist stated that they weren't inclined to think so. It was explained that, even if any sexual relationship existed between Pauline and Juliet, it was a normal phase of adolescence and was not proof of insanity. One psychiatrist recounted Juliet's response to the assertion that she had a sexual relationship with her best friend, which was, How could we? We're both women. The defense did not dispute that Pauline and Juliet killed Nora, instead arguing that by the girls rejecting morality, this constituted a diagnosis of paranoia, and therefore insanity. The defense cited Pauline's diaries from late January 1954, where the girls discussed how much they could make as sex workers in an effort to raise funds for their Hollywood trip. Defense psychiatrists attempted to argue that Pauline and Juliet's rejection of conventional Christianity was also evidence of their insanity, citing Pauline's diary entries about discovering the fourth world. The assertion was that the girls suffered from some type of communicated insanity known as folie de, a French term which translated as the madness of two. This phenomenon of shared psychosis between people living in a close proximity who have little meaningful social interaction with others was said to include symptoms of delusions, paranoia, and lesbianism. Bert Reaper told the court that Pauline had a tendency to treat him with, quote, disdain, but that on lunch on that day of the murder, both girls were in a laughing and joking mood. 
Bert also spoke of Pauline's dalliance with Nicholas and how the young man had been evicted from the boarding house upon being discovered in bed with Pauline. At this stage of the proceeding, it was noted that Juliet, who up until this point had been observing silently and trying to outstare the journalists in the press box, became outraged. Hands clenched, eyes wide with rage and contempt, she hissed something unintelligible at her friend, clearly outraged by a sense of betrayal. Hilda Hume told the court how on the evening following the murder, Juliet refused to discuss the incident, instead insisting on reciting her favorite poems until she fell asleep. Hilda also previously told police that Juliet had always been an exacting and difficult child, and long before the tragedy, we were anxious about defects in her personality and temperament. Juliet was described as excitable, self-willed, demanding, intolerant of criticism, precocious, sensitive, full of fantasy, and found it difficult to stop play-acting games. But Hilda also stated that she had no reason to suspect her daughter was insane. Hilda claimed that she and Dr. Hume were clear with Juliet that Pauline would not be accompanying her to South Africa. However, this failed to reconcile with the fact that the girls perceived Nora as being the sole reason Pauline couldn't leave New Zealand. Dr. Bennett, who had initially examined Pauline at the behest of the Reapers and Dr. Hume, told the court that prior to the trial, Juliet told him, The best people are those who fight against all obstacles in pursuit of happiness. Anything really great is worth having at any cost. Dr. Bennett told the court that both girls considered the murder justified, and noted that aside from feeling regret about families becoming involved, neither girl expressed any remorse. They had delusions of grandeur, formed a society of their own, and lived in it. In this society, they were no longer under any censor and nagging of mothers. The pair were insane at the time of the killing. They are still not sane. In my opinion, they will never be sane. A diary entry from early June by Pauline was used to support this line of defense where she wrote, it is because we are mad. We are both stark, staring, and raving mad. There is definitely no doubt about it, and we are thrilled by the thought. We have discussed it fully. We are feeling thrilled and scared by the thought. Psychiatrists for the defense stated that while there was no proof of a physical relationship, that the girls were indeed in a homosexual relationship, and that this in itself was evidence of insanity. He cited evidence that the girls bathed and slept in the same bed together, and discussed sex freely. The psychiatrist described both girls as sensitive, self-contained, imaginative, selfish, and showed inability to accept criticism. They had mood swings from exultation to thoughts of suicide. Their arrogance, like their conceit, was out of normal proportions. There was a gross reversal of moral sense. They had weird ideas in their own paradise, God and religion. In the psychiatrist's view, both girls believed that what they had done was justifiable in accordance with their own moral code. Pauline herself had told the psychiatrist that she and Juliet were sane, and their own views about the world made far more sense than everyone else's. When Pauline was previously questioned about her relationship with Juliet, she told the defense psychiatrist that they were much closer than just friends, and that she cared more for Juliet than anyone else in the world. Juliet told Dr. Bennett that since the murder, we have both been terribly happy so it has all been a blessing in disguise. The defense closed by stating that the girls' morbidly close friendship had an alarming intensity. They are mentally ill, sick adolescents, not criminals. In contrast, the Crown Prosecutor summed up by ultimately rejecting the testimony of the defense psychiatrists, stating, They are not incurably insane. 
My submission is they are incurably bad. On August 28, 1954, the sixth day of the trial, the jury retired to make their decision. English and Australian newspapers had reported that during the trial, the girls giggled, whispered, yawned, and scribbled notes, but neither Pauline nor Juliet had anything to say to the court prior to hearing their sentence. After deliberating for two hours and 15 minutes, the foreman announced that both girls were guilty. As Pauline was 16 and Juliet 15 at the time of the murder, both girls were sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure in separate prisons. Being under the age of 18, they had avoided the death penalty that was in place in New Zealand at the time, but were essentially facing an indefinite prison term at the discretion of authorities. Epilogue In September 1954, Hilda Hume officially changed her surname by Deed Paul to Perry and she and her second husband-to-be, Walter, sailed back to England. Pauline was imprisoned near New Zealand's capital city of Wellington. She made use of her period of incarceration by studying English, French, Latin, math, drawing, and design for her school certificate. Juliet was sent to prison in Auckland, where she was kept in solitary confinement for three months. She passed her time knitting, writing, and studying English and Italian. In November 1959, both girls were released. Juliet was flown to Rome to meet her father before continuing on to her home country of England. It is widely reported at the time that a condition of any release be that the girls have no further contact. However, this was a furphy. What is true is that, upon release from prison, both girls changed their names. After initially working in England as a secretary, Juliet eventually relocated to the United States, working as a flight attendant, and then found work as a nanny in Los Angeles. In 1972, she returned home to England, became a successful crime novelist, under the name Anne Perry, who has since sold more than 3 million copies of the 20 books she has written. The surname Perry was that of Juliet's stepfather, Walter, whom Hilda had since married. After her identity was revealed in 1994, Anne spoke about the nature of her relationship with Pauline and the motivation for the murder. Pauline was very distressed and she desperately wanted to come with us. I felt that I was betraying her by just leaving her and doing nothing. I really believe that if I didn't take her with us, that she would take her own life, and I made a very, very wrong decision. Pauline felt that her mother was the one thing standing between her coming with us. I didn't have the strength to say no. This is wrong, no matter what, and to just walk away. I did something stupid. I'll regret it for the rest of my life. I can't undo it. There was never, ever, a sexual element to our friendship. Pauline was a really good friend. Pauline, whose name was changed to Hillary Nathan, was released two weeks after Juliet, placed on probation for five years. Hillary's father, who only visited her once in prison, never forgave his daughter, stating, It still doesn't make up for robbing a person of their life. It was evil between them what they did. Pure evil. After Hillary graduated from Auckland University in 1963 with an arts degree, she pursued life as a nun by entering a covenant as a novice, but left in 1964 before taking her final vows. By 1965, she was working as a librarian in Auckland, relocated to England in 1966, where she became a devout Catholic and worked as a horse riding instructor before moving to Scotland in 1997. 
Hillary has expressed remorse for killing her mother, but now lives a reclusive life, refusing interviews and devoting her days to prayer. Despite the pair living in the same country, the two former best friends have not had any contact in the years following their release. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.